This morning we'll be continuing in Second uh, Peter. If you want to open your Bibles to the end of Second Peter chapter 1, you have notes, you can pull those out. Uh, we're going to actually cover quite a bit. Uh, it just depends on, on the first part. We, the first time we only got four verses done because Peter packed so much into them. Uh, in this uh, chapter 2, he gets kind of cruising along and he, and he covers, uh, uh, he just talks a lot about the same things. So we're going to be able to cover a lot more today. We're going to try and finish up chapter 1 and get all the way through chapter 2. All right? Sounds ambitious, but I think we can do it. So uh, we're going to jump in. Now, in chapter 1, um, he was talking about, as you recall, largely uh, all that we have obtained through Christ Jesus, through the knowledge of Jesus and through the, uh, the pursuit of of the promises of God in His Word and through the diligent application of His Word and the diligent pursuit of the eight, what we call the eight character traits. We'll refer back to those. How many of you remember at least a couple of those? The eight character traits, only one person? That's, that's very sad. It's just last week, guys. Okay, good. All right, we're up to three. Feel free to look them up. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, I believe. We talked about those eight character traits. We'll refer back to those because there's going to kind of be a comparison today. So uh, we're going to jump in at uh, where we left off at verse 16 of chapter 1. So let me re- just read the rest of chapter 1 here, and then we'll talk about it. Peter says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scriptures of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. All right, let's break this down. There's some really interesting stuff in here, and uh, There's, uh, well, anyway, we'll just go. All right, so where he's going now and where he's going to talk about for the rest of uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2 is basically sound doctrine, or he's going to contrast sound doctrine with destructive doctrine. And what you're going to see, and remember, uh, we just learned in verse 14 that he knows he's getting ready to die soon, right? And so this is Peter going, I'm out of here pretty soon, I really want to... Uh, just remind you of sound doctrine. I want to establish really important doctrine. Now, this is very basic doctrine, but very important. All right? So, uh, we want to get this. We really want to get this. And what he's going to establish, again, is just the foundation that Jesus is the anointed one. He's going to establish firmly, as being an eyewitness, uh, to go all in on Jesus. Basically, his doctrine is go all in on Jesus. This is all you need to know. Go all in on Jesus, right? And so uh, he establishes Jesus as the foundation. First Peter, he calls him uh, the cornerstone. 
In uh, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. He is the, only, the cornerstone, the foundation, the building block. You start with anything else, and it ends badly, right? And so he really wants to nail down that it's all in Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Uh, and I say the anointed one because that's what his title means. The word Messiah in the Old Testament means anointed one. The word Christ in the New Testament means anointed one. There is one anointed one. There is one man God is going to anoint to save the earth. Amen? Amen? And so this is not just uh, his name. Christ isn't Jesus' second name. It's his title. Jesus the anointed one. In the Old Testament, they just had the coming anointed one to be determined later. Now it's Jesus, the anointed one, the only one. And so we really have to get that down because if we don't, as Peter's saying, it's easy to drift from it being about Jesus. Uh, all things were made by him and for him, right? So you're only here for him. Just a thought. All right. And so he goes on and he says, we were eyewitnesses. He says, this wasn't just a story. We're not just telling you a story we heard. We're not just telling you, uh, you know, compiled notes. And, you know, we're not reporters. We're eyewitnesses. Now, why is this important? Because in Deuteronomy 19, uh, it was determined in the Jewish law that all things would be established by two or three witnesses. So God is going to establish that Jesus is the anointed one, the only anointed one, by three witnesses. And so what Peter's doing is he's going to list now those three witnesses. He's saying, uh, look, we were eyewitnesses. Here's what we were eyewitnesses of. Now, what he's talking about, so you know, by the Holy Mountain is the Mount of Transfiguration. You guys remember that story? We'll go back over it. But that's what he's talking about. So he says, first... We were eyewitnesses of his power and his glory or majesty. Now, they were eyewitnesses of his power through his whole ministry. Uh, Jesus healed the sick, raised the dead, cast out devils. And they saw this happening day after day after day. So they were witnesses of his power. And this is one of the witnesses that God established to identify Jesus as the anointed one. The power of the Holy Spirit resident on him, in him. Amen. And they said they were witnesses of his glory and majesty. And they're talking specifically about the Mount of Transfiguration. What happened there, remember, is um, Jesus says to Peter, James, and John, hey, let's take a walk up this mountain. And they go, okay. And they go up to the mountain. And all of a sudden, uh, Moses and Elijah appear and are talking to Jesus. And Jesus and Moses and Elijah are all glowing, uh, covered in glory, and, uh, and, and Peter, of course, speaks up because he has to. That's what Peter does. Um, and it's interesting what he says, actually. He says, hey, I, I see, you know, you're here with Moses and Elijah. You want me to build three tents for you guys? And, uh, you know, Jesus is like, it's really not a tent moment. Um, but uh, that's more significant than you realize because they built tents at the Feast of Tabernacle, which is traditionally... Uh, the feast that celebrates the coming of the Messiah. And so what Peter was doing was going, oh, you're, you're him. Let's build tents. Let's start tabernacles. So it's actually kind of insightful 
but it wasn't a tent kind of moment. Um, and then God says something, and the next thing Peter, James, and John know is Jesus kind of waking them up and going, don't be afraid. Because when God thunders from the mountain, sometimes you just end up on your face. And that's what happened. You guys remember the story. So that's where he's talking about this glory and majesty. And then he goes on, he says, the second thing we were eyewitnesses of, the second validation that Jesus is the Christ, is the Heavenly Father's testimony, the Heavenly Father's affirmation. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Awesome, right? I mean, think about that. Uh, you got to hear God declare over Jesus, that's my Son. That's, that's a, you know, I bet the other nine apostles were going, dang, why didn't we need to get to the mountain? I'd like to have heard that, right? Wouldn't you? Pretty awesome. So he, so these three are witnesses that the Father has testified that this is the Christ. And then he goes on and he says, and so we have their prophetic word confirmed. Now, uh, there are over 300 prophetic words in the Old Testament about Jesus that are confirmed in the New Testament. But he's not talking about all of those. He's talking about one specifically. And I want you to understand this because I just think it's cool. I love Psalm 2. I've been living in Psalm 2 for a couple of years. It so explains what's going on on the earth today. Uh, I encourage you to read it. It's only 12 or 14 verses. I think it's 14. I forget. Anyway, uh, you should read it really good. Clear uh, word about the Messiah. Basically says... Um, the nations try and get out. The nations get really angry and rage. They try and get out from under the authority of God. They go, we got to throw off the bondage of His rules, and uh, and His Son's rules, and the Anointed One, and uh, and Jesus and God laughs and talks about how He's going to establish His Son as the Anointed One, and it ends with kiss the Son or perish. Your call. It's pretty clear, right? Okay, so um, what's going on, though, is he's saying, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed. He's referring specifically to Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8, which I put in your notes, where God says in Psalm 2, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance in the ends of the earth for your possession. This is the Messiah that they've been waiting for for a long time. They've been reading Psalm 2 for a long time. Check this out, guys. Peter's going, hey, we were on the mountain. We saw Psalm 2 happen. We saw Jesus declare the decree, this is my son. We were there. We witnessed that Psalm 2 has happened. This is the guy. This is the guy that Psalm 2 has been talking about for hundreds of years. So it's a pretty good witness. So he says, so we have the prophetic word confirmed, right? And he goes on to say, uh, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And so he says, this word, this declaration, this third witness, we have the witness of his power and his glory, the witness of the heavenly father's testimony, and the witness of the word confirmed, those three are the three witnesses that confirm that Jesus is the Messiah, right? And so he goes on to say, this word 
is the light in the darkness leading you to the leading to uh, the morning star rising in your heart? Remember, we talked about out of Galatians how Paul was praying that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's basically the same concept that the morning star would arise in our hearts. Now, it's it's saying that these words lead to this prophetic word. Psalm two is to lead you to Jesus. Psalm two doesn't save you; Jesus saves you. The Word doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. The Word leads you to Jesus, who incidentally is the living Word of God, John 1.1, and saves you, right? This is what we see, and I'll talk in a minute more about the morning star, but notice that it's talking about the morning star in our heart, not just that we understand that Jesus is the morning star and we pray to prayer. It's the morning star rising in our heart. It's what Paul was talking about, Christ formed in us. Right? So look at John 5. Uh, again, it's in your notes. And it'll be up here. You don't have to turn there. Uh, John 5, 36 through 39. Jesus lists these same three witnesses about himself. And he identifies how these are what lead to a revelation of him. He says, uh, he's talking about John the Baptist being a witness of him, who John was. Remember, John stood up and said, this is the, this is the one. I saw a dove descend on him. He's the one. So he says, I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So what's witness number one? Again, the same thing, the works, the power. The power is a witness that he is the Messiah. That's why the power of God in our lives is a witness that he is the Messiah. Right? So when we're Go witness Jesus, it'd be helpful if we could do it with power. Amen? Okay. And <clears throat> that the Father sent me, and the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, uh, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. So he's, going, he's, tell, he's talking to the Pharisees, by the way, who aren't buying that he's the Messiah, of course. And he says, the second witness is the Father's testimony, right? Which is the same thing that Peter just listed. The Father testifies me. He goes, look, you don't believe it because um, you don't believe he who uh, sent him. You don't, you don't really believe the Father. And he says this interesting thing. He says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. So what's the third witness? The Word. Same three witnesses. The power, the Father, the Word. Right? But I love what he says here. He says, hey, Pharisees, you guys know the Scriptures better than anybody, but you've missed the point. The Scriptures don't save you. They point to Jesus who saves you. Now, that seems basic, but we got to be careful that we don't, uh, you know, go... Uh, we got to be careful that we remember that the scriptures are to bring us into relationship with Jesus. They're, they're to bring us into intimacy with the one, the Messiah, the anointed one. The only access to the anointing is by connection with the anointed one and the anointed one's body. That's us. And that's in Ephesians 4. So uh, it's important that we don't... Uh, now, the scriptures are very important. It's the word of God. It's the living word of God. 
Uh, Jesus is the Word of God. But uh, just knowing the Scriptures, uh, just knowing doctrine, just knowing theology, that's not what saves us. It's very important that we get that the Scriptures lead us to the man Christ Jesus. Amen? Okay, and so this is what Peter is saying here. Just to throw it in again, in 1 John uh, chapter 5, um, John identifies the same three witnesses. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. The Father, the Word, the power of God, but through the Holy Spirit. Got it? So the Father declares, this is my Son. Uh, any other religion that says God, Jesus isn't God's Son isn't right. It's in disagreement with the Father. Right? The Word declares who He is, prophetically, verified. And the power declares who He is, the Holy Spirit, uh, testifying. Right? Does this make sense? And so, uh, uh, Peter's just trying to really nail down and establish, look guys, this is a firm foundation. You can, you can bank on this. Go all in on Jesus. Amen? He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. And so, and he ends with, uh, this word leads you to the one until the morning star arises in your heart, until Jesus is formed in your heart, right? I want to hit this morning star. I just find this interesting. Sometimes teachers just find interesting things and they want to say them. And so if you're not interested, uh, we'll get back to stuff in a minute here that's practical. But I just like this. I think this is intriguing. So the word morning star uh, is only used three times in the Bible, in the New Testament. And this is the first time. Peter is the first one. The other two times are in the book of Revelation. In Revelation, uh, and we know it's talking about Jesus because in Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus is speaking and he says, I am the bright morning star. So that's pretty clear, right? Here's what I find interesting. In Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, uh, we have the letters to the seven churches, right? One of those churches, uh, Thyatira, in Revelation, the end of Revelation chapter 2, is called the corrupt church. Now that's going to come into play when we get into the second half of Second uh, Peter chapter 2. He's going to talk a lot about corrupt church, okay? So he's talking to the corrupt church in Revelation 2. The church is corrupt because it has allowed Jezebel to teach things that seduce believers away from God, specifically sexual immorality and idolatry. All right, do you see any contemporary application here? Yeah. So there's teaching going on, and the church is allowing it uh, that's seducing people away from the truth. Uh, into sexual immorality and idolatry, right? And with all seven of the letters, he, he says to him whoever comes, and he promises something, right? But there's something very unique in the corrupt church in uh, Revelation 2, 27. It says to him whoever comes, um, I will grant, or I will give him uh, authority over the nations. And then it quotes, we just read earlier, Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8, that's the declaration of the Messiah. Verse 9, the very next verse, 7 and 8 says, you're my son. 8 says, I'll give you the nations. And 9 says, 
you will rule them with the rod of iron. Right? So in Revelation 2.27, it quotes Psalm 2. It says, Who him who overcomes, I will give him authority over the nations to rule them with the rod of iron. It's quoting the Messiah passage. It's saying, in the corrupt church, if you overcome, I'll give you Jesus-like authority. I'll give you Messiah-like authority. This verse is about the Messiah. It's the only letter where he quotes a passage like this. It's the only time this is quoted uh, and given to us. Isn't that wild? And then he goes on, and we see the third use of Morning Star. It's two verses later in verse 30 time, in verse 29, uh, and he says, I will give you the Morning Star. I just find that amazing that uh, Peter starts with this whole Morning Star thing tied together with uh, the Psalm 2 revelation of Jesus. And then Jesus later in Revelation talking to John says, hey, if you're dwelling in the corrupt church, if you find that you're in the midst of the corrupt church, if you overcome, I'll give you the whole Psalm 2 thing. And I'm going to use that morning star term. I will give you Jesus-like authority, the same kind of authority that, that we see the Father giving Jesus in Psalm 2. And I'll give you the morning star. I'll give you Jesus. I will let the morning star rise in your heart. Isn't that a wild promise? And so what's interesting to me is that these things are tied together by these verses, and it's the corrupt church, because where Peter's getting ready to go is talking about, warning about all the corruption that's going to enter in uh, after he's gone. And so he wants the church to be aware. All right, so anyway, uh, I found that interesting, and I'm done now. All right. Uh, he goes on, he ends by, with just a couple verses that basically say um, Scripture wasn't written by men, prophecies weren't written by men, but the Holy Spirit spoke through men, right? And so uh, there is, it is illegal to independently interpret Scripture. Scripture must be interpreted by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit wrote it. Men didn't write it, the Holy Spirit wrote it through men. And so how do you interpret Scripture? Well, you take the whole package. The Bible technically has one author, the Holy Spirit. So what was he saying through Moses? What was he saying through John? What was he saying through Elijah? And you put it all together, and you get a big picture. And he doesn't contradict himself. And the Holy Spirit in us, in the body, not in some individual, interprets Scripture. So he's warning us here, and we're going to talk about this more, about the danger of private interpretations of scripture, not just prophecy. So, you know, uh, you see a lot of that out there. You know, I had a dream and God told me this. And I, well, did you, did you think about lining some of what God told you up with the word? Because it sounds like God's schizophrenic or you heard wrong. <laughs> or I read this, you know, obscure uh, theologian from the fifth century who said this passage really means this. And, well, that's great. Maybe there's a reason he's obscure. It's, uh, I love this. People love to quote, I do this with Rachel all the time. People get in these theological debates, they want to quote theologians, and they, they'll often quote, you know, guys from the 12th century or guys from the 5th century or whatever. I go, that's good. I said, let's go, let's go back further. Let's, go, let's quote some theologians from the 1st century. How about the Apostle Paul? How about John? They were pretty good theologians. What'd they say? You know, you get my point. We've got to be very careful about private interpretation. 
Peter's giving us a warning here. In this day and age, and we're going to see this as we go on. We've got to be careful about this. And so uh, this is how he ends. And so the point of all of this is very simple. Um, he leaves out one small phrase. When he's on the mountain and uh, God speaks, he says, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. You remember what else he says? Hear him. Listen to him. <laughs> Peter, quit talking about tents. Listen to Jesus. Right? So the whole point of all of this is, is a simple theological point. But so important is Peter's just establishing this guy, Jesus, is the Messiah. Listen to him. Hear him. Listen to him. Just listen to him. Yeah, but so-and-so said, listen to Jesus. Yeah, but the other guy said, back in that day, this meant that. And culturally, listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Does everyone understand that theology? Yes. Good. You will not go wrong listening to Jesus. Okay. So, let's go to chapter 2. Peter jumps in. And begins to talk about I'm sorry, destructive doctrines. Alliterations are hard, right? He begins to talk about uh, destructive. Yeah. Bad doctrines. Doctrines that, dis that destroy you. It's always a way. So, verses 1 through 3. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. Will there be false teachers? Is that ever going to stop? No. Let's just know that. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. We'll talk about their judgment and destruction in the next section. Uh, this point, I just want to talk about the destructive doctrines. He says there's going to be false prophets and teachers who will introduce destructive heresies, even up to denying Jesus. Now, I don't think they start there. But even up to denying Jesus. Have you guys seen any destructive heresies introduced in the church recently? Yes. Right. We won't list them. Listen to Jesus. All right. Now, I love the word secret here, and I'm intrigued by it uh, because de heresies aren't destructive if you keep it to yourself. Uh, right? If I embrace a heresy and I don't tell anyone else, uh, I'm not going to do any harm. Uh, they're harmful when they're taught. And so clearly, it doesn't mean secret as in don't tell anyone, but here's the deal. I think what it's talking about is the progressive, subtle nature of deception. I think it's talking about how they, they, they know where they're heading, but they just introduce a little bit, or they just do this little thing or that little thing. And they work their way up to it, or they just change this one little, well, this verse means this, and we won't talk about that, and all that good stuff. And so I think it points to the, the subtlety sometimes of these destructive heresies, and we need to be aware of that. 
We can be fooled if we're not paying attention, if we're not listening to Jesus, continually going back and going, what did Jesus say about this topic, right? Now, it says not only will they introduce destructive heresies, but many will follow their destructive ways. It's going to happen. People are going to believe it. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but humans are a bit gullible, right? You ever been gullible? Yes. Me too. So, many will follow their destructive ways, causing the church to be slandered or maligned. And again, we see this happening, don't we, today? Uh, the church is called hypocritical or ineffectual or not any different than the world. Some, some of that is because of these destructive doctrines that part of the church is following, and they are ineffectual. And uh, we aren't any different. I mean, it is hypocritical, Right? And so the church is blasphemed. The church is maligned. God's honor is maligned because of our uh, representation of him because of deception being wrong. And by our, I say all the church, not that specifically you guys are doing anything wrong. I know you guys are awesome, right? So what, what I want you to get is that uh, this is going to have an impact if other people do it, it will have an impact on us. Our witness is impacted by the witness of others who don't do it right. Right? Okay. So, and it says, they will exploit with deceptive words. And again, I think this goes back to the secret heresies. Uh, I, I, I reintroduced to you the concept of private interpretation. All right? They will exploit through covetousness, because they covet, they, will, they want things, and so they're going to exploit people with deceptive words, with uh, false interpretations, with private interpretations. I think this scripture really means this, and in that context and culture and blah, 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 and if you look at the Greek and the Hebrew and you, and you stand like this, and you, you know, right? And somehow you get there. You can prove anything from Scripture if you're just real sloppy, right? And, and they've done it. And so we got to be aware that this is going to be going on. Now, it says they will exploit because they are covetousness, have covetousness, but, um, but also they will exploit with covetousness, or in other words, if we have covetousness in us, it's exploitable, right? That's the appeal. So let's examine this word for a minute because on the surface, you would think it just means greedy. I covet. I want. I need more money. All right. Anybody here need more money? It's okay. You can raise your hand. I know it's church, but yeah. <laughs> it's okay to need more money. It's not okay to uh, compromise your principles to get it. Right? Uh, we go to work because we need money. But it's way more than just money. Covetousness. Covetousness is going to, I'm going to break it down to three areas for you. And, and these are really succinctly defined in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. Uh, John is defining temptation, and he, he, he defines it in three areas. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. Now, I don't know if you've ever realized this, but these are the only three pitches that the enemy has. And you will always get all three of these pitches. Let me illustrate. Remember, 
Eve in the Garden of Eden? Satan says, did God really say? He always starts with that. May I offer you perhaps a different interpretation of what God said? A private interpretation of what God may have meant by that? Did God really say? All heresy starts with, did God really say? And we get where the temptations lie by Eve's response. And she saw that the fruit was good for food, lust of the flesh, desirable to the eye, lust of the eyes, and useful to make one wise, pride of life. See him? Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 4, specifically to be tempted by the devil. Now, the devil gets out of order here because if you're pitching to Jesus, you've got to throw in a curve. But uh, it still doesn't work. He didn't strike him out. He does the same three ones, right? He, he says, uh, hey, turn these stones into bread and eat them. Lust of the flesh. Jesus has been fasting 40 days. He's probably hungry, right? Hey, uh, I'm going to take you up on this high top of the temple yourself down because it says in Psalm 91 that he will give those angels charge over you and they will bear you up in their hands. Right? Pride of life. It'll be cool. Show, show off, Jesus. Go ahead. He didn't do it. He resists them with scripture each time. What's the third one? He showed them all the kingdoms of the earth. He said, I'll give you these if you'll just bow down to me. Lust of the eye. I'll give you all this. Look at it all. Look at it. You guys experienced those? You will, every day. Less of the flesh, less of the eye, pride of life. I'm going to, because uh, I like alliterations, even though I'm having a hard time with them this morning, uh, I'm going to give you one. These are these three areas that we have to watch. These are the three areas of, of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Covetousness that we have to be aware of so that we cannot be exploited. And they are these. The first is pleasure, lust of the flesh. Right now, there are legitimate pleasures. There are illegitimate pleasures. There are um, pleasures that we're not supposed to partake of. And so, uh, pleasure is one. The second is prosperity. Uh, the the um, the lust of the eye that I can take care of myself, or that I can have enough to take care of myself, or that I I can. It really for us, it's the temptation to comfort, integrity might cause me to experience discomfort. And so I, I might compromise because of my covetousness for comfort, right? Or, uh, and the third one, prominence, pride of life. I, I must have prominence in some way. For a lot of us, it's just acceptance. I had a friend that said he thinks acceptance is America's love language. Well, I would agree with the word of God except for, I don't want to make people feel bad and I don't want people to not accept me, so I'm just going to kind of go along with this one. It's not that big a deal, right? I mean, who am I to say what they can or can't do? Well, it's not you. Jesus already said. Just say what he said. Listen to him. Right? And so these are what we have to watch. The illegitimate uh, appeal of pleasures uh, or prosperity or prominence. Right? This is covetousness. Everybody's aware. All right, guard yourselves. Now, let's go on. The last section is lengthy, 
Um, and uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow through it really fast reading it, and then I'm, I'm going to sum up a lot because he, he covers a lot of stuff, and uh, I'm going to resist rabbit trails. Um, so he says, uh, he's talking in this section about the certainty of judgment and destruction. So he's basically saying, look, uh, they're not going to get away with it, so don't worry about it. They're absolutely going to have, be held accountable for what they're doing. And then it describes what they're doing. We want to spend some time talking about that. So he goes on, he says, For God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. It did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. That's what he's talking about, being an example. And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Uh, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the lust of the flesh uh, and in uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they don't understand. They will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness. Of those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime, they are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deception while they feast with you. Where are they? Yeah, they're in the church. Having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, they have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water. Clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, where there's a description. Anybody heard any of those lately? When they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also he's brought into bondage. For if, after they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. There's a lovely word picture. Now, I'm going to blow through this and break all of this down. Uh, I, I, I actually want us to do, it'll be easier, I think, to process this kind of as an overview, so I'm not going to get real specific um, in terms of detail. So here's what we see. Um, First, we see three examples of God delivering the godly and reserving the unrighteousness for punishment. We see the fallen angels. Now here, 
in case, I don't want to get into all this, but in case it, uh, this becomes a, a tripping point for you, it talks about them being in hell. Uh, it, actually, the word used for hell in the New Testament is Gehenna, except for right here, the only time this is used, Tartaros. No one's real sure what it means, but they're not stuck in hell. Some of them have attended church here. Uh, so I know they're not there. We've had them manifest. Uh, so all the fallen angels, they'll end up in the lake of fire, but they're not there yet. And, and the, the bound, uh, the chains, things also can mean a pit. Anyway, suffice it to say they're bound in darkness. All right? They are stuck uh, operating in darkness. We'll just leave it at that. Um, so the three examples, fallen angels, Noah and the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot. You guys know the story. You know the story of the flood. You know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. And he's saying uh, that this is examples of those who, uh, of God delivering the godly and reserving the unrighteous for punishment. What I want you to see is some of these things look like, you know, now it looks like a big deal, but we got to the flood through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of small choices that ended up having incredible eternal consequences. And so uh, keep in mind that these small choices end up having eternal consequences. Whether we are uh, reserved for judgment or delivered because of righteousness, right? So keep that in mind. And then I thought this was interesting. At the end, he says, especially the ones who despise authority. And we covered this a while back when we were talking about authority uh, in 1 Peter, so I won't go into it in detail. But it says they are presumptuous and uh, unafraid to revile. It says these are people who despise authority. They're really cocky. Notice any of them? Yeah. More and more sounding like this is written to us, isn't it? And they're not afraid to revile people in authority. Guys, we need to be careful. I'm just, I've, I've taught this before, so I'm not going to go into it again. We need to be careful about how quick we are to revile those in authority. You don't have to agree with them. I have no problem disagreeing and pointing out what I think is wrong. But it's crossing a line when we begin to bring reviling accusations. Uh, it's starting to head towards the wrong heart. Right? He is, and and uh, Peter here specifically points this out as a sign of unrighteousness, despising authority, being presumptuous, and not afraid to revile. And then he begins to list characteristics of these people, and I want you to compare them to the eight character traits we saw in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-7. through seven. Remember, add to your faith, virtue to virtue, knowledge to knowledge, self-control uh, to self-control, perseverance, and godliness, brotherly love, love. Those eight virtues, right? So keep those in mind. Because uh, what we're going to see here is exactly the opposite. He starts out by saying, these people end up being brutish, unreasoning, without knowledge, and without understanding. And again, don't list any examples out loud, but you know we see this around us, right? And even some in the church, in the big C church. We see some of this. Now, what I want you to see is, I, I don't think they start here. They go, I'm going to follow Jesus. And they go, well, you know what? I changed my mind. And the next day, they're brutish and unreasoning without understanding. 
I think it's a progression because I read that in Romans chapter 1. By the way, in your notes, that's a typo. It says Romans 8. It means Romans 1. Uh, Romans 8 is much more encouraging. <laughs> Romans 1 verses 18 through 32 describes a progression of evil. Uh, in the same way, uh, in uh, 2 Peter 1, 5, and 7, we see a progression of righteousness to love. Uh, Romans 1 describes this progression of evil. It starts in verse 18 with suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Well, I want to do this unrighteous thing, so I'm just, I'm just going to not cover that truth. We'll just suppress that. And it ends with a debased mind. I can't even tell the difference between right and wrong anymore. It ends with what he's describing here, brutish, unreasoning, without knowledge or understanding, right? And it says that these are people who are deceived within the church. They're fully deceived, but they're still in the church. They want to be in the church, right? Uh, I love in 2 Timothy 3, and I would encourage you, I'm not going to go read these. I would encourage you to go read Romans 1 and go read 2 Timothy 3, these passages, in, as you're reviewing these notes, just to, to see those lists, because they, they are pertinent. Um, but what I love in 2 Timothy 3, he talks about how they'll be ungodly, haters of parents, um, brutal, blah, blah, blah. Um, and he ends with having a form of godliness. Isn't that interesting? Because nothing in that passage sounds godly. But they have some form they're going through where they want to be in the church. And so uh, that's uh, not to make us afraid. We don't need to be afraid of people like this being in church. In fact, I'll say right now, uh, if you're uh, a believer, but you're ungodly and you're compromising and all that, you are absolutely welcome to come here. Well, I've told people before, uh, I remember telling somebody in my office one time, they didn't want to do something. I said, that's okay. I said, you can be rebellious. You're not the first rebellious person to attend here. We don't mind. We'll love you. We're not going to go with you. You're going to be rebellious on your own. And they just kind of looked at me. And I'm like, yeah, yeah I, we kind of believe in calling it as it is. But we're going to love you. Come here. Be rebellious. We're going to love you. We're going to tell you the truth. It's up to you what you decide to do with it. We don't need to be afraid. We just need to not follow these people in their destruction. And for sure, we're not going to let them lead a home fellowship and teach it, you know? <laughs> All right, anyway, they are among us, right? And it goes on, it says that they are hedonistic. They, they, they're just after the pleasures uh, that they can get, uh, that they cannot stop sinning. And not only that, that they entice weak believers. Not only can they not stop sinning, but they're going to try and entice others to go with them because misery loves company. And it says they have a heart trained in covetousness. Uh, so they've been practicing this. They're professionals, right? And it says they have forsaken the right way and chosen the way of Balaam. Now, that word is important, forsaken. They knew the right way, not, oh, I stumbled, oh, I fell. I want to go this way. I want that more than I want this. They chose the way of Balaam. You remember the story of Balaam, the prophet who Balak, uh, the king of Moab, called to prophesy and curse Israel? And says, I'll give you a bunch of money if you'll do it. And Balaam uh, couldn't, prof couldn't curse him. He just kept blessing him. 
Uh, and so it didn't, it didn't work. He wasn't going to get paid. You know what he did? He said, here's all you got to do, Balak. Just get, get all the hot Moabite chicks and the Midianite chicks, because they were kind of together, and, uh, and send them in to marry the Israel guys. And they're going to start worshiping your God, and God's going to get pissed at them, and he's going to judge them, and they'll get cursed. And Balaam did it. I mean, Balaam did it. And you have the whole incident of Phineas, you know, uh, getting righteous indignation and putting a spear through a, a guy and his Midianite wife because they'd, they'd gone and they'd done what God told them not to do. They'd married these other women. That was all on Balaam's counsel. Balaam uh, couldn't prophesy against him, but he wanted to get paid, so he gave him some bad advice. Right? And uh, incidentally, he was with the Midianites when Israel went to Midian and destroyed all them, and guess what happened to Balaam? Dead. So, uh, Balaam chose prosperity over integrity, right? And I'm not just talking about financial integrity. I'm talking about integrity before God, going, I'm going to do it God's way, right? And it says that they threw arrogant, empty words entice believers through lusts. So they're going to appeal to our lusts, to our desires, and they're going to use arrogant, empty words. They have no understanding. Their words are empty, but they're very, very confident in what they're saying. Once again, at the risk of being repetitive, anybody seeing this going on? I don't know how many times I've heard someone say to me in the last few weeks, what is going on with our country? This is insane. This doesn't make any sense. And I go, yes, but they're very confident. Aren't they? They're very confident in their empty words. Because they're trying to entice us through desires. And then it ends with, they promise freedom while they themselves are enslaved or overcome by corruption. Ah, oh, you can do this. You can be free. You don't have to obey all those rules. You don't have to do all those things. God says, you can be free. How about you? Well, I can't not do it. I'm addicted to this and this and this. and I'm bound by corruption, but you can be free. Just be like me. Freedom, bro. Right? It's a lie. Jesus said in John 8, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he said, who the sun sets free is free indeed. And they said, well, we're sons of Abraham. We've never been slaves. He goes, oh, yeah? He goes, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. If you guys got sin issues, you're slaves. That's what Jesus tells them. All right? And so Jesus is the only one that considers us free from corruption. Amen? So these false teachers will promise you freedom. You can do what you want. You can indulge in this. You can indulge in that. You can, Jesus didn't really mean that. Did God really say? Right? And you end up enslaved with them. So he ends by calling them dogs and pigs, which, you know, was a little insulting. Right? He's quoting a proverb. Dog, you know, ever had a dog do that, throw up, and then go eat it? Kind of gross. Yeah. Uh, pigs, you can, you can bathe your pig as much as you want to. They'll go right back out and find mud. It's in their nature. But in doing this, he says, they're like this, and it would have been better for them not to have known than to willingly have turned away. And I kind of want to underline willingly there, because that's really where the line is. Now, uh, God's mercies are new every morning. Start fresh every day. If you're struggling, he will forgive you. 
There's grace. There's grace. There's grace. But there's a line at the point where you go, you know what, I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to decide this is okay. I'm just going to decide that that was cultural and God doesn't mind if we do this now. I'm just, at that point, I suggest you, you've crossed a dangerous line. There's grace to fail. There's not grace to decide that you have a different opinion than Jesus. No scripture is of private interpretation. And so Hebrews 10, I'll let you go read this on your own. Verses 26 through 29 talks about this. It's kind of scary. It says, if we continue to sin willfully, in other words, not just I'm stumbling, I'm deciding I'm going there. Right? That's the line. We consent, continue to sin willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. All that's left is a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation that will devour God's adversaries. That should scare us. And it goes on. It talks about um, trampling the Son of God underfoot, insulting the Spirit of grace. Basically going, yeah, I know you died to set me free from sin, but I really want to do this stuff. So I'm just going to have a form of godliness. Will that be okay, God? And the answer is, no. Got it? So here's what I want you to see. We talked about those eight character traits. And the critical line is from the first one to the second one. Add to your faith virtue. We talked about last week, add to your beliefs behavior. Our, our, uh, faith and works together. Our, our beliefs have to affect our behavior. If we don't do that, if we allow covetousness to compromise our behaviors if we go I i'm going to believe in jesus but i'm not going to fully add to my faith jesus-like behavior i'm going to kind of pick and choose like a uh, like a buffet i'll do some of the jesus behaviors but not all of them if we do that guess what happens we never move on to the other six add to your faith virtue add to your belief behavior Add to that knowledge of Jesus. Well, I know enough. I know, I know that I'm saved by Jesus. That's all I need to know, right? I once had a, a prostitute one time. I didn't realize she was a prostitute. And I got in the conversation. Uh, she was a hitchhiker. Um, and, uh, and when she, you know, asked me to pay her for stuff, uh, I started talking to her about Jesus. And I'll never forget. This is a woman who just asked me to, to give her money for sex. And... Uh, she says, as she's getting out of the car, because I'm getting her out of the car as fast as I can now. I was a very young believer, and you know, you pick up hitchhikers, you never know what you're going to get. So uh, she leans in the door, and she goes, oh, I'm a Christian. Jesus loves sinners too. Smiles at me and shuts the door. And I went, well, okay. That's scary. If we never get from belief to behavior, we won't get on to the knowledge of Jesus. We won't add to that self-control. Why exercise self-control? He wants me to be happy. He loves me. Right? Perseverance. Phew. Perseverance is for people in the Middle Ages. We got computers. <laughs> See where I'm going here? You never get to the end. Godly love. If we... If we have a problem crossing the line from belief to behavior, we won't get down to the rest of them. There's just no point. Right? And so this is a big line. Now, if we begin to follow the other progression, 
the covetousness progression, the compromising our behaviors because of our desires. We don't end up in godly love. We end up in self-love. How many of you have heard the statement, um, well, God wants you to love yourself. You can't love others until you learn to love yourself. Can anybody tell me where that is in the Bible? First opinions, 2.14. Did God really say? It's not in there. It sounds very clever. It sounds, you know, in a sort of psychological kind of way. Well, that makes sense. How could I love others if I don't love me? No, eh, wrong, dumb, but say it confidently, right? Covetousness will end in self-love. I'm just going to read you some selective phrases out of that 2 Timothy chapter 3 passage. They will be lovers of themselves without self-control, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness. It's exactly the opposite of what Jesus tells us in Matthew 16, 24. If anyone desired to come after me, let him love himself. Oh, wait a minute. What did it say? Deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. It's not just wrong. It's the opposite of what he said. So if we get caught at covetousness, uh, we will end up in self-love, which I suggest will cause a lot of problems in your life. Amen? All right. So my point in all this is this. Beware of the seduction of small compromises. All around us, there are secret heresies being introduced. Got to love yourself before you can love others. Stuff like that that lead to bigger heresies. Beware of small compromises. I love Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15. He says, catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines. For our vines have tender grapes. We got lions and tigers and bears. I'm not worried about the little foxes. Yep, the little foxes are eating the tender grapes, the things that are just starting to come to fruition in you. And you'll never bear fruit if the tender grapes get eaten. you got to catch those little foxes. They will ruin your vineyard. They will ruin your fruit. So we've got to watch for little compromises. And again, we don't have to be mean. We can love people, but we, we, we need to call a lie a lie and not go with them. Amen? Amen? So, to sum up what Peter said, or what God said, uh, Jesus is the anointed one. Listen to him. 